0: Please grab your copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah chapter 42. And our verses today are verses 1 through 4. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. Behold my servant, whom I am uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God indeed. Please be seated. Christian poet William Cooper was a master of religious poetry and imagery, and one of the most widely read English poets of his day. He was born in 1731 in great Berkhamstead, England, and his father was the rector of the village church and one of King George II's chaplains. Even with this, the family was not evangelical, and William grew up without any saving relation to Jesus Christ. After the death of his mother when he was six, his father sent him to a local boarding school. He then moved on to Westminster School in London, and in 1750 began to study law. He was called to the bar in 1754 and took chambers in London's Middle Temple in 1757. William never really applied himself and had no heart for the public life of a lawyer or politician, and he often suffered from deep bouts of depression. For 10 years, he didn't take his legal career seriously, but instead lived a life of leisure with token involvement in his vocation. Then, in 1763, when he was 32, he was selected to be appointed the Clerk of Journals in Parliament. Now, what would have been a great career advancement for most men struck fear into the heart of William Cooper. So much so, he had a complete and total mental breakdown and tried to commit suicide three different times. In December of that year, he was committed to St. Albans' insane asylum. William Cooper is the epitome of the bruised reed that we read about in Isaiah today. Let me ask you, are you struggling with the ebb and flow of life? Do you suffer from physical ailments, some form of addiction, depression? Maybe it's simply internal disappointments, discouragements, maybe unfulfilled desires, possibly just the strain of the Christmas season causes the weight of life to bear down on you. Like the melancholy of William Cooper, do you find yourself on the verge of breaking or that your faith is barely a spark and about to be extinguished? Friends, today is the third Sunday of Advent, which is the Sunday of joy. And in our passage today, we see the announcement of the servant of the Lord, which is Christ. And we also see the work to which he will perform. So no matter what the waves of life that are eroding your spirit, be encouraged. I would even say, be joyful. Because God's chosen servant has brought his kingdom to the earth. Now, Isaiah 42 is the first of the four servant songs out of the book of Isaiah in which God the Father refers to his son as servant. The other songs are found in chapters 49, 50, and 52. And in our text today, God invited the ancient people of Israel to behold his servant. Now at the time when Israel was given these words, Isaiah was given these words, the people of Israel were in desperate trouble. They had turned away from God and had turned to idols instead. The northern tribes of Israel had just been carried away by the Assyrians because of their disobedience to God. And now, the threat of the Babylonian captivity was looming looming over the southern kingdom of Judah. Isaiah prophesied more than just the rebuilding of Israel. He anticipates the coming of the Messiah with detailed accounts of what this Messiah's life would be like and what would happen to him. The songs of the suffering servant gives us a unique view into the character of Christ. The Israelites lived in anticipation of this first advent of Christ. And remember, advent is just coming. Looking through these prophecies, they look through these prophecies with veiled eyes. And in today's text, we see Christ's first coming, his mission, and then inference to his final consummation. We start in verse one, which says, Behold my servant, whom I'm uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I've put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah starts verse one with the exclamation, Behold my servant. He's literally saying, Hey, look at here. And he's drawing the hearer's attention from the idols that Isaiah's lamenting about in chapter 41, and focusing us. On the one who is the worthy object of our worship, Lord's Servant. Now the Jews recognized long before Jesus' time that this was a reference to the Messiah. In almost all their ancient translations from the Hebrew and Aramaic, they insert between the third and fourth words of verse one the word Messiah. So the Jews would have read, "Behold, my servant, Messiah, whom I uphold." So you see, 600 years before Christ came. The Jews knew to whom the servant was that these verses referred, the Messiah. Now, we know as Christians that this servant is Christ because in Matthew's gospel, he writes in chapter 12, 17 to 20, that this prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus. Matthew 12, 17 to 20 says, And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Hey, did you hear that? Until he brings justice to victory, the Gentiles will hope. This is the gospel. Now, we also know from the text that Isaiah, uh, that the God, I'm so sorry. (laughs) We also know from the text of Isaiah that God the Father chose this servant specifically, will uphold him, delight in him, and put his spirit upon him to accomplish the Father's plan. Again, in the New Testament, we see this affirmed in the person of Christ. 1 Peter 2.4 As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Matthew 3.16-17 and 17, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Acts 2.23 Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And Acts 4.27 and 28 In this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. We see the fact that God, in his pleasure, initiated and brought forward Christ. But we also see later in the verse, God stating what the purpose of the Messiah's mission is. To bring forth justice to the nations. And this mission is so important that justice is repeated three times in the four verses of our text today. So let's take a brief but deeper look at the Hebrew word for justice to get a better sense Of what Isaiah is trying to communicate to us. The Hebrew word itself is mishpat, which implies more than just to judge. It's nuanced. It literally means to pronounce divine law. We could easily then read this verse as he, my servant, the Messiah, Christ, will pronounce divine law to the Gentiles. So what is this divine law that Christ will pronounce? It's the gospel. Matthew Henry, commenting on this verse, says this The work to which he, the servant Christ, is appointed is to set up a religion in the world under the bonds of which the Gentiles should come and the blessings of which they should enjoy. The pulpit commentary says Christ will bring the Gentiles the true law of God, the gospel. Other commentators write this to mean the servant will pronounce the true faith of the gospel to the Gentiles. So the specific work to which Christ, God's servant of Isaiah, is appointed is to bring the gospel, establishing his spiritual kingdom among the Gentiles. And a deeper meaning of justice then is that the servant Christ will establish the gospel beyond the boundaries of the Jews and out to the whole world. And we see this affirmed in the New Testament. Matthew 4, 17 and 23. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Galatians 3, 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you, all the nations will be blessed. Acts 26, 17 and 18, and this is Christ speaking to Paul, says, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that may, they may turn from the darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And also Romans fifteen, 8, 9, and 13. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So you see, 600 years before Christ's birth, in what Jews could only see dimly through prophecy, we see clearly through the lens of the New Testament. We live in the already not yet tension of Christ's kingdom. Christ's messianic kingdom is now, and he is reigning now from the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We are living post Christ's first advent. Post Christ's first coming, which is the already. And at the same time, we're looking forward to the not yet. And this not yet will be fully consummated at Christ's second advent, when he comes to establish the new heaven and the new earth. So, as God's covenant community, we should find great comfort and joy in living between these two advents. We can look behind us in history to see the promise of a coming Savior fulfilled in Christ's birth. Death and resurrection, as foretold by the prophets. And we can live in confidence, looking forward in time to a second coming that will unfold in His timing as He has promised. As we move now into verses 2 and 3, which say, He will not cry aloud or lift up His voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed He will not break, and a faintly burning wick He will not quench he will faithfully bring forth justice. This statement about not being loud or making himself heard in the street implies the nature to which the servant Christ will conduct his ministry. Christ communicated in a quiet, unaggressive demeanor, and this demeanor flows into how he handles his covenant community. 1 Peter 2.23, when Christ was reviled he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Verse 3, we see how he handles his covenant people. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. The bruised reed and the dimly burning wick are metaphors for people who are in some form of misery Vulnerable, distressed, or uncertain. The bruised reed, which is damaged and easily broken, is a person so fragile that one more burden could cause them to break. Maybe this person has been emotionally crushed or hurt by unkindness, a life that is somehow bent and bruised, shattered, without strength or beauty. And the faintly burning wick, which is barely a spark. And although smoking, it's unable to turn into a flame. This is the person who is struggling in their faith to burn brightly for the Lord. Maybe they're desperately ashamed of how dimly their light burns. Maybe there's more smoke than fire. Maybe so little prayer, so little testimony, so much depression, dejection. And upon comparing themselves to others, feels discouragement and maybe even resentment. Do you feel like a bruised reed, like the stem of tall grass whose slender stem has been damaged by being stepped on? Do you feel like your faith is just a spark instead of a flame? Picture that little red dot at the end of a birthday cake candle. Once you blow it out, it's barely there. A bruised reed is the one that has been damaged, but not yet broken. Imagine the care you would need to move it safely so you can mend it. And if you're not paying attention, a hasty or uncaring move could ruin it and make it unusable. Or a smoldering wick, it'll go out unless proper care is taken to revive it into a flame. Often, we feel that God deals roughly with our weaknesses and failures. But friends, just the opposite is true. He deals with us so gently, tenderly, helping us along until the bruised reed is strong and the smoking flax is in full flame. The care our Savior takes as he handles us, handles our souls, is so gentle and so caring. Matthew 1128 28-30 Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, sometimes the Lord bruises us to bring us to saving knowledge of Him. And for those who already believe, sometimes the Lord bruises us deservedly for our sins. He does this to humble us and form us into who He wants us to be. James 1: two to four. Counted all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Romans three: excuse me, Romans five: three through six. We rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, at those times when we feel our faith is almost extinguished or that we've entered to what's commonly known as the dark night of the soul and we feel far from God, in pursuing us, Christ will not quench the smoking flax, but will gently blow on it and fan it until it's aflame again. Jeremiah 31.25 For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. Hebrews 2.17 and 18 Christ had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted and hebrews 4:16 let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may re- receive mercy and find grace in our time of need you see jesus sees the value in a bruised reed even when no one else can If you think of how a reed is used in a musical instrument, although fragile, Christ can make beautiful music come from it as he puts his strength into it. Not our own strength, but his strength into it. Though a smoking flax, as used for a wick on an oil lamp, it's good for nothing. But Jesus knows its value and for what it can be when he refreshes it with oil. John Owen says this, Christ, from his own heart and affection, gives us help and relief, and he is inwardly moved during our suffering and trials with a deep sense and feeling of them. Dane Ortland says, If you are in Christ, you have a friend who in your sorrow will never lob down a pep talk from heaven. He cannot bear to hold himself at a distance. Nothing can hold him back. His heart is too bound up with yours. This Advent season, take heart. No matter your suffering, discouragement, or disappointment, flee to Christ. Because the Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of encouragement. Though bruised, He will not allow you to break, and though merely smoke, He will not snuff out your spark. Verse 4 continues on to say, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Now this is interesting. The verb used of the servant in verse four for grow faint and discouraged are the exact same two verbs that are used for the wick and the reed in verse three. So literally we could read Christ will not grow dim nor be bruised. As Christ rules from heaven, he will show no signs of the weaknesses to which he shows us compassion and support. And additionally, the verse attests that he will be successful in establishing his gospel. It continues on to say, then, upon the earth and the coastlands, wait for his law. To refer to the coastlands is to give a word picture of something that is locationally far away. Think of the concept of coast-to-coast. When we say from coast-to-coast, we mean the entire nation. And in the case of coastlands, he's alluding to the world. So the world shall wait, or more literally hope, for his law. So in verse 4, Isaiah is now looking beyond the first coming of Christ to his second. And by his first coming, Jesus fulfilled verses 1-3. through And now in verse 4, it will be fulfilled in his second, when he rules the earth in perfect justice. John Calvin puts it this way, Christ was sent in order to bring the whole world under the authority of God and under obedience to him. So you're probably wondering, what happened to William Cooper? By God's mercy, Cooper was put under the care of Dr. Nathaniel Cotton who was a solid believer and a lover of the gospel. Six months into his stay at the the insane asylum, Cooper found a Bible lying on a bench. And soon, Cooper, the bruised reed through reading Romans 3.25, came to know Christ. William said this of his conversion, Immediately I received the strength to believe it, and the full beams of the sun of righteousness shone upon me, I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, my pardon sealed in his blood, and all the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment, I believed and received the gospel. So after his time in St. Albans, he recovered his reason. William moved to the country town of Olney, where he met John Newton, who was the pastor of the town. Soon they were close friends, and oftentimes took sweet counsel together over the preciousness of Christ and the fullness of Christ's salvation. Newton and Cooper co-authored the only hymns together, of which Newton's amazing grace was one. And out of the 280 hymns, 68 are written by William Cooper. In Cooper's most famous hymn, which we'll sing today, uh, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, this is what he writes. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there have I, as vile as he, washed all my sins away. Dear dying Lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power, till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Aren't those beautiful words? Now, for those of you who know the story of William Cooper, I would love to stand up here and tell you that his story was one of emotional triumph after his conversion. But it just didn't turn out that way. A large part of Cooper's life was spent in the gloom of melancholy in which he had... Uh, tendencies uh, towards suicide. In 1786, Cooper entered his fourth and deep depression and again tried to commit suicide. He moved from Olney to Weston that year, and then a long mental decline began. He wrote his last original poem in 1799 called The Castaway, and then died apparently in utter despair in 1800. Now, you're probably saying, Chuck, why such a story of sorrow on the Advent Sunday of joy? Well, let me give you two points to think about. First, there are many, not all, but there are many, although smiling in their seats in church on Sunday, live daily with discouragement and have hearts and minds that are weighed down by life's circumstances. If you are a bruised reed or a smoking flax, turn to Christ. If you know someone or are a friend to someone who is a bruised reed or a smoking flax, with gentleness and love, steer them, point them to Christ. Remember Christ's words out of Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Hear that again. I will give you rest. You will find rest. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. If you're wrestling with unbelief and need assurance, I'd encourage you to memorize these words from Romans. Romans 8, 35, 38, and 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or the sword? For I am sure neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of Christ in Jesus our Lord, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Richard Richard Sibbs, in his book, The Bruised Read, writes this. Christ as priest offered himself as a sacrifice to his father for us. The guilty soul flees first to Christ crucified. If we are overtaken with any sin, we must remember Christ's mercy to pardon us. And then when we feel ourselves grow cold in affection and duty, the best way to warm ourselves is at the fire of Christ's love and mercy. George Swinnick in Blessed and Boundless God says, Is it not grace to the highest degree for this perfect, self-sufficient, incomparable God to look on us? When we were naked, restless, famished, gasping for breath, God looked on us with favor. He clothed us, gave us rest, bound our wounds, raised us from the dead, and freed us from our bondage to Satan, sin, and death. Second, in this Advent season, remember these things. Our servant Lord Christ was chosen by God. He is beloved, equipped, gentle, merciful, and faithful. He will bring to light he will bring light to the nations. He will open eyes that are blind. He will free the captives from prison and release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Ephesians 2, 4-7 But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love to which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So during this Christmas season, let's celebrate Christ's first coming. But let us not neglect to look forward and eagerly anticipate his second. Let's pray. O God, you are life, wisdom, truth, bounty, and blessedness. The eternal, the only true good, our God and our Lord. You are our hope and our heart's joy. We acknowledge with thanksgiving that you have made us in your image and that we may direct our thoughts to you. Lord, make us know you that we may love, enjoy, and possess you more and more through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.